Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom's weight management programs are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port and I am here every single week on the Pitchless Podcast Network talking about the players that have helped shape the history of baseball throughout Major League Baseball, throughout baseball across the world. For those who may be new to the podcast, every single week I will take a different player in baseball history, sometimes depending, maybe multiple players, and basically tell the story of the how they got into baseball, how they were developed through baseball, and then talk about their careers and their legacies. We'll talk about whether or not they are Hall of Famers. We'll talk about those players, what they brought to the story of baseball and how they helped tell the story of baseball. And then throughout the 40, near 40 episodes of this podcast, we have ranked those players that I've talked about and you know that has sparked a lot of discussions, but also helped us talk about the greater picture of how we tell the story of baseball and where these players fit into the telling of that mythology of those tall tales and legends. Now, today we're talking about a particularly important player that I feel like we haven't talked enough about. And sort of to preface this, as I often like to work in threes, it feels neat and clean to do so. And usually I'll pick a theme of, of a player I want to talk about and then build two other players around that. But I'm actually going to deviate from that this time. I've spent the last two weeks talking about two of the greatest relievers to ever tow the rubber, Kenley Jansen and Mariano Rivera. And originally I was going to wrap up this run on relievers this week with another closer, but Current events made me want to pivot and tell a different story today. Last week, the baseball world lost an all-time great in Vita Blue. He was a star pitcher in the 70s and the 80s, and I'll admit, when I first heard about Blue's passing, I will, I'll be open about it. I wasn't particularly familiar with Blue's story or his legacy, and some of that's, I, I live, live most of my life in Cleveland, and just... I wasn't as familiar with some of the history of the A's and some of the teams that Blue played for. Really, also, it speaks to somewhat of how we have failed to, I think, have greater discussions and talk more about the legacy of some of the, the greater black players that have played in in the majors, especially during the 70s and the 80s. I think we touched on that uh, when I did my episode uh, a few months back on Willie Stargell. But really, as I started to learn more about Blue's story, and I just really felt like a change in schedule was made. Discovering and exploring the stories of some of the unknown greats from baseball's history is like the entire purpose of this podcast. I really felt like I wanted to pivot and talk about Blue 
while we all were thinking about and reading about him and his his legacy. Blue was a true youth prodigy, as we'll get to it in a minute here, but his story is at the same time a tale of triumph and also a cautionary tale, and then eventually actually turned right back into a, a story of triumph and redemption. It really is a, a powerful story, if, a re- if sometimes an uncomfortably real one. The f- he was the 15th member of what was called the Black Aces. That was an informal group of all the African-American pitchers who have won 20 games in a season. Blue was actually one of the most dominant pitchers across the 70s and was part of a, the three-peat Oakland dynasty in that era before eventually drugs and alcohol would derail his career and personal life in the 80s and 90s. Now, across 17 seasons, the Southpaw from Louisiana played for the Athletics, Giants, and Royals, amassing 3,343.1 innings pitched, which is 89th all-time, to go along with 2,175 strikeouts, which is 67th all-time, and his 44.9 war is 138th amongst pitchers. His 209 wins rank 101st all-time, while his 37 shutouts are 57th all-time. He won an MVP in a Cy Young while making six All-Star games while winning an ERA title as well. He had seven seasons with at least 100 innings pitched with an ERA under three, and just three seasons of out of 17 with an ERA over uh, 3.8. He has, I think, really, when you look at it, an interesting Hall of Fame case, if albeit a borderline one, but his story is an important one regardless, not just to baseball, but to the A's and to African-Americans in the sport of baseball. It's easy to get wrapped up in how drugs derail this career, and we'll get there. But it's worth noting that overall it's a largely successful career, regardless. And if you only tell the story where it ends with drugs and what-ifs, you're only telling half the story of, frankly, one of the best black pitchers of the modern era. We'll talk about the whole career. We'll talk about the good and the bad, but we're not going to get bogged down in one or the other. My goal is to tell the whole story of Vita Blue because it's important. And as I mentioned, it's a redemption story in many ways, and that matters and means something too. So I really hope I do Blue justice here and do justice to what his story means and what it can mean to others as well. Now, I know it's a little early, but before I jump into telling Blue's story, because once I start, I really don't want to stop. Let's actually take our first break here real quick, and then when we come back, I am going to tell us the story of one Vita Blue. When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. And that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com 
to sign up for your trial today. Born in Mansfield, Louisiana to uh, Vita Sr. and Sally Blue, Vita Rochelle Blue was the youngest of six children. And by the way, I just want to say, you all know I love a good baseball name. And you can search the entirety of baseball history, and you would be hard-pressed to find a better name for a future star baseball player than Vita Rochelle Blue. Like, it just oozes coolness. I, I, I don't know how, uh, like, I, I don't know anything about advertising or marketing or PR or anything like that. And that just seems like the easiest name in the world to sell as, like, a cool pitcher, right? That, that's just a fact. I, I don't make the rules. I just live by them, and that's an awesome baseball name. Now, Mansfield at the time was still a segregated town when Blue was a teenager in the early 1960s, and the black high school he attended didn't have a baseball team. But Blue was a heck of an athlete, and he played football, he was just a, really a star athlete all around, and reportedly he could throw a baseball like it was shot from a cannon, was how it was described. And the legend goes that the principal of the school saw Blue's natural talent at the game and created a baseball team at the school for him. That's how good he was, was his principal saw it and said, uh, we have to have a team. We cannot let this talent go un unseen, unfulfilled. Now, despite the brand new baseball team, Blue stood out and he caught the eyes of scouts, including Ray Swallow of Viven, Kansas City A's. By the time Blue plays for the A's, it'll then be Oakland. But uh, Blue was noted for both his skills and actually on the other side is wildness. Apparently in one game in high school, he threw a no-hitter while striking out 21 hitters, but lost the game after walking 10 of them. There was this talent just waiting to be molded and refined, but it was all there. And it was just evident. It just needed to be harnessed. And it's worth noting that Blue was a highly sought-after football talent as well. He was actually recruited by big school, big-name schools like Notre Dame, Purdue, and Houston, who actually were even recruited. Houston was recruiting Blue as a QB, which, to give you an idea of how talented he was then, that was practically unheard of at the time. It just didn't happen. Again, this is just barely post-segregation in many ways, and in many parts of the country was still segregated. To have Blue be recruited as a QB, as a black QB, just tells you how good of an athlete he was at the time. Now, Tragically, Vita Sr. would pass away during Blue's senior year, and Blue felt like he could better support his family playing baseball, so he decides to enter the major, the MLB draft, and he ends up getting selected in the second round by Kansas City in 1967, as I mentioned, that will become Oakland pretty, pretty soon here, who signs him to a two-year, $12,500 per year contract. Now... Blue immediately starts off for the A's. Blue immediately starts off for the A's pitching in the Arizona Winter Instructional League that year. And he continues to show both his strikeout prowess and his propensity for walking hitters by striking out 26 hitters while walking 22 across 9 starts and 34 innings thrown. At just 18 years old at this point, he gets an invite to spring training in 1968 and ends up assigned to start in A-ball. Now, Blue did not disappoint. He strikes out 17 hitters across eight innings while giving up just three hits at A-ball, and he continues to excel. Later in the season in the minors, he threw a no-hitter 
during that year, and he ends up finishing the season with an 8-11 record across 24 games with a 2.49 ERA, a 1.20 whip, and an astonishing 231 strikeouts in just 152 innings pitched while walking only 80 hitters. Now, this earns him a promotion to double-A in 1969, and he doesn't let up for a second. He goes 10-3 with a 3.20 ERA and a 1.27 whip, with 112 strikeouts and 104 innings pitched across 24 games. Now, rumor had it that A's owner Chuck Finley saw a future star and was pretty antsy to call him up. And ahead of the time in which you would normally call up a player, on July 20th, 1969, Vida Rochelle Blue made his major league debut against the Angels. Now, he had an okay debut, throwing 5.1 innings pitched, giving up five runs with only three of them being earned with just one strikeout. But for a 19-year-old facing veteran players, just making it out of that game in one piece is pretty much the goal. And Blue accomplishes that, absolutely. To even be in that game is a remarkable accomplishment for a 19-year-old, let alone getting out of it intact, so to say. Nine days later, he makes a second start, getting his first career win, giving up four earned runs over eight innings pitched with four strikeouts against the Yankees. Again, nothing spectacular yet, but for 19 years old, it's pretty solid. Now, eventually he moves to the bullpen for the rest of the season, and he largely struggles there, finishing the season with a 6.64 ERA over 42 innings pitched with just 24 strikeouts and a save to his name. Now, Joe DiMaggio, that's a name we all recognize and know. He was then a coach with the A's at the time, said, it's a, It was a shame to bring up a kid like that when he hasn't pitched two pro years. He throws as hard as anybody, but he hasn't learned to pitch yet. And I think that's an accurate summation of not just Blue, but really any 19-year-old trying to pitch in the majors. And that's the thing. He hadn't really gotten the time to develop those skills and gain that experience. You often hear the phrase... Uh, a pitcher, a young pitcher, being described as being a, a thrower, not a pitcher yet. And and this describes Blue at this stage of his career to a T. And also, unfortunately, it's really, the it, while it's the first time Chuck Finley would do something that wasn't in Blue's best interest to serve his own desires, it won't, unfortunately, be the last time he does this. Now, it would be easy to think that starting 1970 off back in the minors would be taking a step back for Blue, but honestly, it was the best thing for him. He needed to refine his skills. And AAA, he met an MLB veteran named Juan Pizarro. And Pizarro took Blue under his wing, and Blue credits him with making him the pitcher that would eventually set the baseball world on fire. Pizarro basically helped Blue by pointing out several mechanical adjustments he could make, and really refined his delivery and taught him the a new grip for his curveball. And these changes would actually serve him for the rest of his career. And I think when you look at players, this is one of those like, you know, important impact points. We always seem to find these impact points in a successful player's history, a mentor, a guru who gets through to the player and, you know, Sets them free, so to say. And if you look up any description of Vita Blue, one of the most consistent things you'll see is someone talk about how smooth and effortless his delivery was for how much power he was able to to generate. And for a fireballer, this was incredibly rare to have such a smooth, easy motion. 
and it would kind of become his trademark, especially during his peak. And that throwing motion was developed here with Bizarro's help. And also, I mean, let's not forget, we talked about the wildness, and this fixes that in a big, big, big way. So uh, it's always these little, I'm just always fascinated by these little sort of turning points, you know, almost like sliding door moments that then happen in a player's career that either pushes them to greatness or if they don't happen, keep them in mediocrity or unrealized potential. Because, you know, I mean, think about it. I talk about this a lot with sports, but, you know, if you're good enough to make it to the major leagues, right, even if you fail out of the majors, you are an incredible baseball player. Every player, you know, I think James Paxton is the last name on this list right now for this podcast. And James Paxton's an incredible baseball player. You know, I think there's this this sort of thought that like, you know, we'll hear people like, oh, that guy sucks or that guy's not very good. And it's so silly because it's like there's, you know, not that many players who are able to play at that level. I mean, it's probably 0.1% or probably even smaller than that. Of the people who play baseball. And it is often so defined by these these little things when we see a player make it or not, that if they didn't have the skills, they wouldn't have made it to that level in the first place. But that little that one little refinement or that one little thing that clicks, someone taking a chance on them or having a way to to, to explain something to them or teach something to them that 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 is, you know, sort of that unlocks them, so to say. Those things don't happen and you end up either an average player or not making it in the majors, and it's just those little things, and it's what fascinates me the most when I do this podcast, when I tell these stories, these little turning points, it just blows me away, so, you know, I wonder if they try to keep Blue up that year, you know, in the majors, and be like, would he have learned those things, would he have made that change, and just kind of, it's a great what if, you know. Now, these changes transform Blue as he dominates at AAA. He goes 12-3 and over 133 innings pitched in the minors with 112 strikeouts and a 2.17 ERA. Perhaps most importantly, he walks just 55 hitters, and it seems he had suddenly found the command and control that, elu- that had eluded him up until this point. Now, on September 7th, he's called back up to the majors, and he makes six starts. He's fantastic, giving up one or no runs in four of those starts through the rest of the season, throwing 38.2 innings pitched with 35 strikeouts and a 2.09 ERA with a 0.83 whip, including two complete game shutouts. Of all those games, though, it's one of those complete game shutouts that truly stood out. On September 21st, in just his fourth start of the year, Vita Blue didn't just shut out the Minnesota Twins. He didn't just throw a complete game either. He throws a freaking no-hitter. He's just 20 years old at this point. Can't even buy beer. Uh, at least if he was pitching today. But he's already throwing no-hitters. <laughs> That's crazy. That night, the pitcher he outdueled, by the way, was Jim Palmer, who would go on to win the Cy Young that year. That's how good Vita Blue was at such a young age. It just it blew the baseball world away. Now, if 1970 felt like the coming out party for the young Vita Blue. 1971 would be the year he became a legend. At just 21 years old, he would put together one of the single greatest pitching seasons in history. Over an astonishing 312 innings pitched, he strikes out 300 hitters while putting up an absurd league-leading 1.82 ERA while also leading the league with a .95 whip as well as in shutouts, he leads the league with 8 
He leads the league in FIP with a 2.20 mark in hits per nine with six and shutout sorry and strikeouts per nine with an 8.7 mark. Now, do you know how many pitchers in history have had a season with more than 300 innings pitched with 300 strikeouts in the ERA under two? 12. Just 12. Do you know how many have pulled that off post-integration? Or, heck, post-1912? Just three. Steve Carlton, Sandy Koufax, and Vita Blue. That's it. And no one has pulled that off, actually, since Carlton did it just a year after Carlton did so in 1972. So that's how rare this season was. And has been. that's how rare it's been since Blue pulled it off. It's also worth noting that while Koufax did it twice, he was 27 and 30 years old when he did it. And Carlton was also 27. So if I need to remind you, again, just to hammer the point home, Vita Blue was 21 when he did this, right? That's insane. He ends up an all-star for the first time that season and more importantly wins the Cy Young Award and the MVP award that year. Now, after getting crushed in his first start, where he gave four runs and just 1.2 innings pitched, he goes over his next 11 starts without taking a loss, including 10 wins and just 10 earned runs over that stretch. Just a wild stretch of dominance. You know, at one point, actually, over that stretch, he had five consecutive starts with at least nine strikeouts, and nine of those starts were complete games over that 11-start stretch. It's hard to really express how popular Blue became over this time period to anyone who grew up in the Sports Center era, because I mean we were just we're, we're so used to as a member of that era, you know, someone becomes a star nowadays and it's 24-hour news cycle, it is everywhere. But this is the 1970s, so we're talking newspapers. Like you had to actually go like cover the guy, right? So reporters. I mean, he was just he was everywhere. Like, I really can't express it. Blue appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Heck, he was on Time Magazine on the cover. And was a sensation nationwide, practically overnight. Everything Blue did became news. It was was honestly a lot for any 21-year-old. And that'll come into play, obviously, becoming so popular at such a young age. And the pressure that goes with that will be something that weighs on Blue throughout his career. You know, I think of this a lot of times with athletes. When we expect an athlete at a young age to be, you know, mature and disciplined and, you know, all these different things that we're asking of oftentimes players of, you know, 24, 25, and I think we're asking too much of them sometimes. That stuff at 21-year-old is a lot. And I, I remember myself at 21, <laughs> and I don't think I would have handled it particularly well. Making bad decisions was basically like, you know, what you do when you're 21. And, you know, I think Blue handled it. We'll get to it later, but handled it poorly. But I think handled it about as well as anyone, 20, any 21-year-old would at the time period. Now, he was the winning pitcher in the All-Star game, by the way, that year, making him the youngest pitcher to ever win the All-Star game. Blue would also stand as the youngest player to ever win the Cy Young until Dwight Gooden won it at 20 years old in 1985. And to this day, he's the youngest player to ever win the MVP. That's right. He won the MVP that year, by the way. We don't see pitchers win the MVP all that often, especially, you know, really post-integration. Now, only 11 players in history have won both the MVP and the Cy Young Award in the same year. I mean, we're talking a genuinely one-of-a-kind unicorn season that I don't know if we'll ever see the like of again. We're just never going to see this happen again. I mean that wholeheartedly. I truly believe that. 
Now, we're not done with 1971, though, yet, as in a large part, thanks to Blue's incredible season, the A's make the playoffs for the first time since 1931. That's 40 years of not making the playoffs. I can't even imagine the excitement and hype that would have surrounded breaking that streak. And it might not have been, like, outrageous since the team had just moved, but it honestly just had to be incredibly exciting. It had to be outrageous. Now, at the time... There was just the ALCS in the World Series in the playoffs. By the way, there was not the there wasn't the division series of the wild uh, wild card yet. And while Vita does not pitch well in the ALCS, he gives up five earned runs across seven innings, pitched with eight strikeouts. He would take the loss against Baltimore in the series, and Oakland would actually lose the series that season. Now, while the Bay Area fans might have been disappointed, little did they know that they were on the cusp of one of the greatest rides in the history of the game and taught him the a new grip for his curveball. And these changes would actually serve him for the rest of his career. And I think when you look at players, this is one of those, like, you know, important impact points. We always seem to find these impact points in a successful player's history, a mentor, a guru who gets through to the player, and, you know, sets them free, so to say. And if you look up any description of Vita Blue, one of the most consistent things you'll see is someone talk about how smooth and effortless his delivery was for how much power he was able to, to generate. And for a fireballer, this was incredibly rare for, to have such a smooth, easy motion. And it would kind of become his trademark, especially during his peak. And that throwing motion was developed here with Bizarre's help. And also, I mean, let's not forget, we talked about the wildness, and this fixes that in a big, big, big way. So uh, it's always these little, I'm just always fascinated by these little sort of turning points, you know, almost like sliding door moments that, that happen in a player's career that either pushes them to greatness or, if they don't happen, keep them in mediocrity or unrealized potential. Because, you know, I mean, I think about it. I talk about this a lot with sports, but, you know, if you're good enough to make it to the major leagues, right, even if you fail out of the majors, you are an incredible baseball player. Every player, you know, I think James Paxton is the last name on this list right now for this podcast, and James Paxton's an incredible baseball player. You know, I think that there's this this sort of thought that, like, you know, we'll hear people like, oh, that guy sucks, or that guy's not very good, and it's so silly because it's like there's, you know, not that many players who are able to play at that level. I mean, it's probably 0.1% or probably even smaller than that of the people who play baseball. And it is often so defined by these these little things when we see a player make it or not, that if they didn't have the skills, they wouldn't have made it to that level in the first place. But that little that one little refinement or that one little thing that clicks, someone taking a chance on them or having a way to... to to explain something to them or teach something to them that 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 is, you know, sort of that unlocks them, so to say. Those things don't happen, and you end up either an average player or not making it in the majors. And it's just those little things, and it's what fascinates me the most when I do this podcast when I tell these stories. These little turning points, it just blows me away. So, you know, I wonder if they try to keep Blue up that year, you know, in the majors. And be like, would he have learned those things? Would he have made that change? And just kind of, it's a great what if, you know. 
Now, these changes transform Blue as he dominates at AAA. He goes 12-3 and over 133 innings pitched in the minors with 112 strikeouts at a 2.17 ERA. Perhaps most importantly, he walks just 55 hitters, and it seems he had suddenly found the command and control that, elu- that had eluded him up until this point. Now, on September 7th, he's called back up to the majors, and he makes six starts. He's fantastic, giving up one or no runs in four of those starts through the rest of the season, throwing 38.2 innings pitched with 35 strikeouts and a 2.09 ERA with a 0.83 whip, including two complete game shutouts. Of all those games, though, it's one of those complete game shutouts that truly stood out. On September 21st, in just his fourth start of the year, Vita Blue didn't just shut out the Minnesota Twins. He didn't just throw a complete game either. He throws a freaking no-hitter. He's just 20 years old at this point. Can't even buy beer, at least if he was pitching today. But he's already throwing (laughs) no-hitters. That's crazy. That night, the pitcher he outdueled, by the way, was Jim Palmer, who would go on to win the Cy Young that year. That's how good Vita Blue was at such a young age. It just it blew the baseball world away. Now, if 1970 felt like the coming out party for the young Vita Blue, 1971 would be the year he became a legend. At just 21 years old, he would put together one of the single greatest pitching seasons in history. Over an astonishing 312 innings pitched, he strikes out 300 hitters while putting up an absurd league-leading 1.8 two ERA while also leading the league with a .95 whip as well as in shutouts he leads the league with eight he leads the league in FIP with a 2.20 mark in hits per nine with six and shutouts are and strikeouts per nine with an 8.7 mark now do you know how many pitchers in history have had a season with more than 300 innings pitched with 300 strikeouts and an ERA under two 12 just 12 Do you know how many have pulled that off post-integration? Or, heck, post-1912? Just three. Steve Carlton, Sandy Koufax, and Vita Blue. That's it. And no one has pulled that off, actually, since Carlton did it, just a year after Carlton did so in 1972. So that's how rare this season was. And that's how rare it's been since Blue pulled it off. It's also worth noting that while Koufax did it twice, he was 27 and 30 years old when he did it. And Carlton was also 27. So if I need to remind you, again, just to hammer the point home, Vita Blue was 21 when he did this, right? That's insane. He ends up an all-star for the first time that season and more importantly wins the Cy Young Award and the MVP Award that year. Now, after getting crushed in his first start where he get four runs and just 1.2 innings pitched, he goes over his next 11 starts without taking a loss, including 10 wins and just 10 earned runs over that stretch. Just a wild stretch of dominance. You know, at one point, actually, over that stretch, he had five consecutive starts with at least nine strikeouts, and nine of those starts were complete games over that 11-start stretch. It's hard to really express how popular Blue became over this time period to anyone who grew up in the Sports Center era. Because, I mean, we were just, we're, we're so used to, as a member of that era, you know, someone becomes a star nowadays, and it's 24-hour news cycle, it is everywhere, but this is the 1970s, so we're talking newspapers, like, you had to actually go, like, cover the guy, right? So, reporters, I mean, he was just, he was everywhere. It, it, like, I really can't express it. Blue appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated, heck, he was on Time Magazine on the cover. 
and was a sensation nationwide, practically overnight. Everything Blue did became news. It was it was honestly a lot for any 21-year-old. And that'll come into play, obviously, becoming so popular at such a young age. And the pressure that goes with that will be something that weighs on Blue throughout his career. You know, I think of this a lot of times with athletes. When we expect an athlete at a young age to be, you know, mature and disciplined and you know all these different things that we're asking of oftentimes players of you know 24 25 and I think we're asking too much of them sometimes that's of a 21 year old is a lot and I, I remember myself at 21 <laughs> and I don't think I would have handled it particularly well making bad decisions was basically like you know what you do when you're 21 and you know I think blue handled it we'll get to it later but handled it poorly but I think handled about as well as anyone, 20, any 21-year-old would at the time period. Now, he was the winning pitcher in the All-Star game, by the way, that year, making him the youngest pitcher to ever win the All-Star game. Blue would also stand as the youngest player to ever win the Cy Young until Dwight Gooden won it at 20 years old in 1985. And to this day, he's the youngest player to ever win the MVP. That's right. He won the MVP that year, by the way. Oh, we don't see pitchers win the MVP all that often, especially, you know, really post-integration. Now, only 11 players in history have won both the MVP and the Cy Young Award in the same year. I mean, we're talking a genuinely one-of-a-kind unicorn season that I don't know if we'll ever see the like of again. We're just never going to see this happen again. I mean that wholeheartedly. I truly believe that. Now, we're not done with 1971, though, yet, as in a large part, thanks to Blue's incredible season, the A's make the playoffs for the first time since 1931. That's 40 years of not making the playoffs. I can't even imagine the excitement and hype that would have surrounded breaking that streak. And it might not have been, like, outrageous since the team had just moved, but it honestly just had to be incredibly exciting. It had to be outrageous. Now, at the time, there was just the ALCS in the World Series in the playoffs, by the way. There, was not the, there wasn't the Division Series of the wild, uh, wild Card yet. And... Well, Vida does not pitch well in the ALCS. He gives up five earned runs across seven innings, pitched with eight strikeouts. He would take the loss against Baltimore in the series, and Oakland would actually lose the series that season. Now, while the Bay Area fans might have been disappointed, little did they know that they were on the cusp of one of the greatest rides in the history of the game. And taught him the a new grip for his curveball. And these changes would actually serve him for the rest of his career. And I think when you look at players, this is one of those, like, you know, important impact points. We always seem to find these impact points in a successful player's history. A mentor, a guru who gets through to the player and, you know, Sets them free, so to say. And if you look up any description of Vita Blue, one of the most consistent things you'll see is someone talking about how smooth and effortless his delivery was for how much power he was able to, to generate. And for a fireballer, this was incredibly rare for, to have such a smooth, easy motion. And it would kind of become his trademark, especially during his peak. And that throwing motion was developed here with Bizarre's help. And also, I mean... Let's not forget, we talked about the wildness, and this fixes that in a big, big, big way. So uh, it's always these little, I'm just always fascinated by these little 
sort of turning points, you know, almost like sliding door moments that, that happen in a player's career that either pushes them to greatness or, if they don't happen, keep them in mediocrity or unrealized potential. And because, you know, I mean, think about it. I talk about this a lot with sports, but, you know, if you're good enough to make it to the major leagues, right, even if you fail out of the majors, you are an incredible baseball player. Every player, you know, I think James Paxton is the last name on this list right now for this podcast. And James Paxton's an incredible baseball player. You know, I think there's this this sort of thought that like, you know, we'll hear people like, oh, that guy sucks or that guy's not very good. And it's so silly because it's like there's, you know, not that many players who are able to play at that level. I mean, it's probably 0.1% or probably even smaller than that of the people who play baseball. And it is often so defined by these these little things when we see a player make it or not, that if they didn't have the skills, they wouldn't have made it to that level in the first place. But that little that one little refinement or that one little thing that clicks, someone taking a chance on them or having a way to to, to explain something to them or teach something to them that 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 is, you know, sort of that unlocks them, so to say. Those things don't happen and you end up either an average player or not making it in the majors, and it's just those little things, and it's what fascinates me the most when I do this podcast, when I tell these stories, these little turning points, it just blows me away, so, you know, I wonder if they try to keep Blue up that year, you know, in the majors, and be like, would he have learned those things, would he have made that change, and just kind of, it's a great what if, you know. Now, these changes transform Blue as he dominates at AAA. He goes 12-3 and over 133 innings pitched in the minors with 112 strikeouts and a 2.17 ERA. Perhaps most importantly, he walks just 55 hitters, and it seems he had suddenly found the command and control that, elu- that had eluded him up until this point. Now, on September 7th, he's called back up to the majors, and he makes six starts. He's fantastic, giving up one or no runs in four of those starts through the rest of the season, throwing 38.2 innings pitched with 35 strikeouts and a 2.09 ERA with a 0.83 whip, including two complete game shutouts. Of all those games, though, it's one of those complete game shutouts that truly stood out. On September 21st, in just his fourth start of the year, Vita Blue didn't just shut out the Minnesota Twins. He didn't just throw a complete game either. He throws a freaking no-hitter. He's just 20 years old at this point. Can't even buy beer, at least if he was pitching today. But he's already throwing no-hitters. <laughs> That's crazy. That night, the pitcher he outdueled, by the way, was Jim Palmer, who would go on to win the Cy Young that year. That's how good Vita Blue was at such a young age. It just it blew the baseball world away. Now, if 1970 felt like the coming out party for the young Vita Blue. 1971 would be the year he became a legend. At just 21 years old, he would put together one of the single greatest pitching seasons in history. Over an astonishing 312 innings pitched, he strikes out 300 hitters while putting up an absurd league-leading 1.82 ERA while also leading the league with a .95 whip as well as in shutouts, he leads the league with 8. He leads the league in FIP with a 2.20 mark. In hits per nine with six and shutouts are and strikeouts per nine with an 8.7 mark. Now, do you know how many pitchers in history have had a season with more than 300 innings pitched with 300 strikeouts and the ERA under two? 12. Just 12. 
Do you know how many have pulled that off post-integration? Or, heck, post-1912? Just three. Steve Carlton, Sandy Koufax, and Vita Blue. That's it. And no one has pulled it off, actually, since Carlton did it, just a year after Carlton did so in 1972. So that's how rare this season was. And has been. that's how rare it's been since Blue pulled it off. It's also worth noting that while Koufax did it twice, he was 27 and 30 years old when he did it. And Carlton was also 27. So if I need to remind you, again, just to hammer the point home, Vita Blue was 21 when he did this, right? That's insane. He ends up an All-Star for the first time that season, and more importantly, wins the Cy Young Award and the MVP Award that year. Now, after getting crushed in his first start, where he get four runs and just 1.2 innings pitched, he goes over his next 11 starts without taking a loss, including 10 wins and just 10 earned runs over that stretch. Just a wild stretch of dominance. You know, at one point, actually, over that stretch, he had five consecutive starts with at least nine strikeouts, and nine of those starts were complete games over that 11-start stretch. It, it's hard to really express how popular Blue became over this time period to anyone who grew up in the Sports Center era because, I mean, we were just, we're, we're so used to, as a member of that era, you know, someone becomes a star nowadays and it's 24-hour news cycle, it is everywhere, but this is the 1970s, so we're talking newspapers. Like, you had to actually go, like, cover the guy, right? So, reporters i mean he was just he was everywhere it, it, like i really can't express it blue appeared on the cover of sports illustrated heck he was on time magazine on the cover and was a sensation nationwide practically overnight everything blue did became news it, it was it was honestly a lot for any 21 year old and that'll come into play obviously becoming so popular at such a young age and the pressure that goes with that will be something that weighs on Blue throughout his career. You know, I think of this a lot of times with athletes. When we expect an athlete at a young age to be, you know, mature and disciplined and, you know, all these different things that we're asking of oftentimes players of, you know, 24, 25, and I think we're asking too much of them sometimes. The test of a 21-year-old is a lot, and... I remember myself at 21, and I don't think I would have handled it particularly well. Making bad decisions was basically like, you know, what you do when you're 21. And, you know, I think Blue handled it, we'll get to it later, but handled it poorly. But I think handled it about as well as anyone 20, any 21-year-old would at the time period. Now, he was the winning pitcher in the All-Star game, by the way, that year, making him the youngest pitcher to ever win the All-Star game. Blue would also stand as the youngest player to ever win the Cy Young until Dwight Gooden won it at 20 years old in 1985. And to this day, he's the youngest player to ever win the MVP. That's right. He won the MVP that year, by the way. We don't see pitchers win the MVP all that often, especially, you know, really post-integration. Now, only 11 players in history have won both the MVP and the Cy Young Award in the same year. I mean, we're talking a genuinely one-of-a-kind unicorn season that I don't know if we'll ever see the like of again. We're just never going to see this happen again. I mean that wholeheartedly. I truly believe that. Now, we're not done with 1971, though, yet, as in a large part, thanks to Blue's incredible season, the A's make the playoffs for the first time since 1931. That's 40 years of not making the playoffs. I can't even imagine the excitement and hype that would have surrounded breaking that streak. And it might not have been like 
outrageous since the team had just moved, but it honestly just had to be incredibly exciting. It had to be outrageous. Now, at the time, there was just the ALCS in the World Series in the playoffs, by the way. There, was not the, there wasn't the Division Series of the wild, uh, wild Card yet. And while Vida does not pitch well in the ALCS, he gives up five earned runs across seven innings, pitched with eight strikeouts. He would take the loss against Baltimore in the series, and Oakland would actually lose the series that season. Now, while the Bay Area fans might have been disappointed, little did they know that they were on the cusp of one of the greatest rides in the history of the game. The 1971 season, though, wasn't without controversy. With uh, Vita Blue now firmly cemented as one of the most popular and exciting players in baseball, A's owner Charlie Finley became obsessed with getting Vita to change his name to True Blue, even going so far as to offer Blue $2,000 at the time to do it, which was a lot of money at the time. And this is insanity to me, but Blue felt his name was a tribute to his father, which makes perfect sense. And he refused to do that. This meant a lot to, to Vida. And, like, I th- one, I think it's insane. We would never see an owner try to get a player to change their name nowadays. But I'm not, I'm not going to paint Charlie Finley in, in a good light here. I, I apologize if I'm not giving the full uh, story. But he, he definitely is the villain of the story because uh, agency... Or consent clearly didn't matter to Finley at all. He would make the, sh- the scoreboard show True Blue when Vita pitched. He made the radio and television announcers do the same thing, despite Blue repeatedly asking them to stop doing so. Which, again, just... There's this place where you start to be like... Uh, you feel like you, you own this person, which, obviously, talking about a black man is <laughs> rough. And, and I'm not trying to call him a racist, or I'm not trying to do anything like that, but... It, there's just a place where you're like, guys, uh, you tell a guy to change his name. For the record, tries to change it from the coolest name in like baseball history, period. Uh, again, Vita Rochelle Blue. Just want to say it in this full thing because it's just the coolest baseball name ever. And I don't know what would possess someone to want to change that name. But if you ask a guy to change his name and he says no, you should respect that. And if you're, you're not going to respect that, then there seems to be a certain place where you feel like you own that person and I think we struggle with this in sports a lot where we don't where we sometimes forget that they're people and don't treat them as people with that respect and it's clear that Charlie Finley felt that way by the way he treats Blue throughout his career in Oakland and this would actually build a certain Blue just had an historic season the A's have just been more successful than they've been in 40 years but this builds up a ton of resentment over the course of the season because it just happens over and over and over throughout the entire season and it ends up spilling over into the offseason as well. Blue felt that, rightfully so, after a historic season that he deserved to get paid more, which of course he did. And Finley refused to pay him a salary consummate with the other top 10 pitchers in baseball at the time, which Blue absolutely was. And again, this does not make Charlie Finley look good, but uh, attempting to gain leverage over Blue Finley airs these negotiations and the dirty laundry that goes along with them in public, in the press. And in response, Blue says fine. He holds out at the start of the season while using tactics that included a staged retirement. I believe at the time he claimed he was going to go work for a steel company in town. And the, the whole thing causes 
Blue to miss spring training and the first 18 games of the season. Now, while he did agree to sign a new contract, I believe for about $63,000, which is still far less than his value at the time, he was obviously way behind his conditioning. And I think nowadays we would have seen them probably start him at the minors or build him back up to get up to there as if he had a spring training, like as if he had gotten injured. That's not how they did it. And so he gets off to a rough start at the beginning of 1972. In the first half of the season, he makes 10 starts, throwing a 3.15 ERA over 68.2 innings. But he finds his dominant form again in the second half, throwing 82.1 innings with a 2.51 ERA and a .98 whip across 13 starts. Now, overall in the year, he throws 151 innings with a 2.80 ERA and 111 strikeouts with a 6-10 record. The A's would make the playoffs again with Blue pitching almost exclusively out of the bullpen. And he's great in the ALCS. He makes four appearances, throwing 5.1 innings pitched with five strikeouts and a four-inning save as Oakland would win the series over Detroit. Then, in the World Series, he picks up another save and made a start in Game 6, pitching fairly well, giving up three runs over 5.2 innings pitched while taking the tough loss. The A's would go on to win Game 7, though, and with that World Series win, a dynasty was born. Now, there's no slow start for Blue in 1973, as he is fantastic, throwing 263 innings with a 3.28 ERA and a 1.21 whip, with 158 strikeouts, 13 complete games, and 20 wins with just 9 losses. This is, for the record, the first season that puts him then into the ranks of the Black Aces. is not the last season he'll do. Now, throughout the year, many start to talk about how Vita had become more of a pitcher rather than a thrower. His star teammate, Sal Bando, was quoted in a Sports Illustrated article as having said, In the first part of 1971, Vita was overpowering everybody. Now he is overmatching them. He finishes seventh in the signing voting that year, and the A's make the playoffs for the third year in a row. Blue would make two starts in the ALCS against Baltimore, and he pitches poorly, giving up eight earned runs across two starts with one loss and just three strikeouts. Despite this, the A's win. They win the series, and they return to the World Series. He's better there making two starts against the Mets, throwing 11 innings and giving up six earned runs while again taking one loss with no wins. The A's win the series anyways to give them back-to-back World Series wins. Now, despite his playoff struggles, Blue was able to follow up his successful regular season in 1974 by throwing 282.1 innings with a 3.25 ERA and 174 strikeouts to go along with a 17-15 record. He throws 12 complete games and 40 starts as a 1.22 whip on the year. Oakland makes the plans for the fourth year in a row, and this time, Vita Blue finds playoff redemption, as he is fantastic. In the ALCS, he makes one start, throwing a nine-inning complete game shutout with seven strikeouts against Baltimore. We'll give him just two hits. That's it, two hits. Oakland wins the series, sending the third consecutive World Series, where against the Dodgers, Blue makes two starts, throwing 13.2 innings with nine strikeouts and five earned runs. He takes a loss in the series, but he pitches well. And Oakland, again, emerges victorious, winning three World Series in three years. Just an incredible run. One of the the best three-year runs by a team in baseball history. Now... Blue takes that momentum and carries it over into the 1975 season, throwing 278 innings across 38 starts with a 3.01 ERA and 189 strikeouts with a 1.23 whip. He throws 13 complete games and is elected to a second career All-Star game where he was chosen to start the game as well. Now, while he didn't throw 
a full no-hitter in the season. He was the starter for a combined no-hitter the A's threw against the Angels that year in the last game of the season. Now, unfortunately this season, the A's playoff excellence had caught up with them. There's only so many times you can make that deep playoff run year through year with the same players and not have injuries and fatigue catch up to you. And they end up, despite making the playoffs, they end up falling to the Red Sox in the ALCS Blue makes one start in the series. He gets roughed up, giving up three runs in three innings. And it's unfortunate because while, again, the A's had one of the best stretches in baseball history here over the past three years, this would actually be the last time that Blue would see the playoffs in his career. Now, 1976 saw major changes in how free agency would work in baseball with many changes to the reserve clause. And the reserve clause restricted really a lot of player movement in that time period and greatly increased probably how much it would cost to retain your players and keep them on your team. And Charlie Finley wasn't willing to do that. We've already seen him fight with his star pitcher over paying him what he was worth. It's not shocking that he was also not willing to pay to retain his star players. And so Charlie Finley decides to have a fire sale. First catfish hunter is traded away the year before. And now Reggie Jackson and Ken Holtzman were traded next. And now, despite this, Blue was fantastic in 1976, regardless of the team around him. He throws 298.1 innings with 166 strikeouts and 2.35 ERA and a 1.11 whip while going 18-13. and 13. Now, at the deadline, Finley tries to trade Blue to the Yankees, along with Raleigh Fingers. But the trade was actually rolled back by baseball commissioner uh, Bowie Kuhn, as he felt it wasn't in the best interest of baseball. Thanks to Blue's fantastic season, uh, despite all this turmoil and turnover, the A's finishes two and a half games out of first place while they do miss the playoffs. Now, finally, 1977 saw the full demise of the A's dynasty as Finley let Joe Rudy, Raleigh Fingers, and Sal Bondo walk in free agency. This leaves just Blue stuck behind on the team from those World Series teams. Now, when Finley traded Blue to the Yankees the year before at that deadline deal that got rolled back. He had gotten Blue to sign an extension, basically saying, like, I signed you to an extension that will trade you, and that was conditional to part of the deal. The trade was rolled back. Blue was held to the contract extension, which I'm not sure how that works that way, but sure. Now, when you throw all this in there, again, this is a lot, right? You know, he's stuck on this team that's no longer good. He, He... was screwed over in the deal. He got to feel like he doesn't have a lot of agency in his situation, especially. And due to all this turmoil, all the upheaval, Blue actually really struggles for the first time in his career. He throws 279.2 innings with a, with a 3.83 ERA and a 1.32 whip and 157 strikeouts to go along with a 14-19 and 19 record. He is named to his third All-Star game that year, despite all of that, and the A's will uh, miss the playoffs. Now, in the offseason heading into the 1978 season, Blue is finally traded to the other side of the bay, actually. He goes and plays for the San Francisco Giants. Now, finally free of his rough relationship with Finley, Blue sees a resurgence in his pitching, throwing 258 innings with a 2.79 ERA with 171 strikeouts and an 18-10 record with a 1.17 whip. He's an all-star for the fourth time in his career and for the second year in a row. He finishes third in the Cy Young voting while winning the Sporting News Award for National League Pitcher of the Year. The Giants, unfortunately, do not make the playoffs. And for just the second time since 1971, Blue isn't pitching in the postseason. 
Now, he's 28 at this point in 1979, and for most pitchers, this would be like the heart of their peak. But it's hard to view him like the typical 28-year-old because he started so young. And at this point, if you think about it, he's already been in the league nine years. He's got all that mileage that comes along with that. He's already thrown at 28, 2,000 innings on that arm, several seasons of 300 innings plus pitched. It just, it, it seems logical that we're talking about more, if you think of the average pitcher nowadays, starts at like 25 or so, more someone in their early to near mid-30s in terms of their career. It, it seems like at this point, wear and tear started to take its toll on, on Vita, and he struggles mightily in the 1979 season. Well, he does go 14 and 14. He throws 273 innings, putting up a 5.01 ERA with just 138 strikeouts and a 1.51 whip. I, I don't want to sugarcoat this in any way. It was a truly rough season for Blue. He walks a career-high 111 hitters that year as his control just completely abandons him. And this doesn't help the struggling Giants at all as they finish in fourth place. They miss the postseason. It's just overall a season to forget for both Blue and the Giants. The thing is, if you thought Vita Blue was done, you would be wrong. He rebounds in 1980 in a huge way, throwing 224 innings across 31 starts with a 14-10 and 10 record and a 2.97 ERA, 129 strikeouts, and a 1.17 whip. His control had returned as he cuts his walks nearly in half, all the way down to 61 walks in essentially the same amount of innings as the year before. It's the hardest part about Vita's skill set. He would always succeed so long as he kept the walks down. Uh, they would always be his Achilles heel throughout his career. Anytime, any season where you saw him struggle, it was always the walks that got him, especially as the strikeouts started to wane. At this point in his career, he wasn't striking out as many hitters. He needed to limit those walks when he was going to succeed. Now, despite Blue's bounce back year, the Giants continue to struggle. They win just 75 games and finish fifth in the NL West. Players strike short in the Giants' season to just 111 games in the following season. But once the season actually got going, Blue, who's now 31 years old, has probably his last truly great season. This is in 1981, throwing uh, 124.2 innings pitched across 18 starts with a 2.45 ERA, 67 strikeouts, and a 1.21 whip to go along with an 8-6 record. It's worth noting that this snaps an eight-season streak of winning at least 14 games. That's just a remarkable streak in terms of consistency. Really, to win just 14 games across eight seasons, nearly a decade. Just genuinely remarkable streak. Now, once again, the despite this, the Giants don't compete in the division. And Blue's last real great season goes for naught, unfortunately. Now, moving into 1982, Vita Blue is traded at the end of spring training to the Kansas City Royals, and Blue is solid, if unspectacular, for Kansas City, throwing 181 innings to the tune of a 3.78 ERA with a 1.34 whip and 103 strikeouts with a 13-12 record. He was actually, I mean, having a truly fantastic season with a 3.36 ERA coming into his final four starts before running out of gas and falling apart across those last four starts at the end of the season. Now, Kansas City had no more success than San Francisco did, and Blue remained outside of the postseason looking in. In 1983, though, is the year really it all falls apart for Blue. When the, he would struggle so badly 
that he would end up relegated to the bullpen after just seven starts and struggled overall, finishing with an abysmal 6.01 ERA. It was clear that something was wrong, right? Be it, be it an injury or something else. We'll get there in a minute. But something was amiss. Now, uh, unfortunately, it would turn out to be something else. In the offseason, Blue was accused, along with several of his teammates, with trying to buy cocaine. And Blue would end up pleading guilty to cocaine possession and served 81 days in prison. The league would then suspend Blue and four others for the offseason, for the offense, for the entire 1984 season. Eventually, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn would reinstate all of Blue's teammates after three months, but Vida stay suspended all year, which I, I don't get. I looked everywhere. I did, probably spent probably the longest chunk of research trying to figure this out. I looked everywhere to see why Blue was treated differently. I couldn't find, though, any rational explanation for it. In fact, it, it's really strange. Most of the publications at the time treated Blue's involvement as like this separate thing, almost like two different like situations or crimes that occurred, rather than it being all the same one, which is what it really was. It's genuinely weird. I, I don't understand it. If somebody listening knows what happened or why he was, please, at Daniel J. Port on Twitter or, or email longballlegacies at gmail.com. I would love to know because I could not find the context anywhere for it. I don't even think it was racially motivated. Two of the other three players that were suspended, uh, Willie Wilson and Willie Atkins, were black. And they were really reinstated earlier than Blue. So I, I don't understand it. They all served prison time. I don't understand. But I, I, no leniency was shown to Blue regardless of the reason why. And so even when he finished his prison se sentence, he remained out the entire season. He would return in 1985 after signing with the Giants again. And he's okay, considering he had just missed a full season and is 35 at that point, throwing 131 innings with a 4.47 ERA and a 1.49 whip. The writing was likely at the wall at this point. The toll his drug use took on his body was pretty apparent. He also testifies that year in the Pittsburgh drug trials about the pro proliferation of cocaine in Major League Baseball. He plays one more year in 1986, throwing 156.2 solid innings for San Francisco with a 3.27 ERA and a 10-10 record. But in the spring of 1987, Blue decides to call it a career at the age of 37. Some rumors at the time were that he had failed more drug tests, but nothing came out publicly along those lines, which, considering he was on parole, would have led to jail time or some kind of public signs that had happened. So, so I don't necessarily buy that, uh, that that he failed drug tests in this situation. Now, instead, Blue began speaking publicly about his struggles with addiction. And he made it clear that he felt the environment of professional baseball was not conducive to him being able to handle his addiction issues. In his autobiography, Blue stated that I had reached the point where I had to choose between baseball and life. I think that quote says it all. He also said, along with all the glory I'd achieved, there was a growing darkness reaching for me, and the light began to dim as early as 1972, which seemed to imply that this was a struggle for Blue throughout his entire career. And again, I go back to the pressure that had to come with being so famous, so young. And I just, not to say this isn't shocking, it is. It's just more to say that I think it's worth viewing this part of his career and the things that he went through in the context of understanding those pressures and understanding those things. It just could not have been easy, especially for someone who struggles with addiction. Now, luckily, this isn't 
where Blue's story ends. He would play in the Senior Baseball Association, actually, in 1989-1990, and he worked with the Giants as a community representative. He would go and talk to kids about the danger of drugs, and he would even actually work as the commissioner of their youth baseball program at one point. Now, he would still battle his demons his entire life, as anyone who has dealt with addiction will tell you. You don't, you're never cured. It's not something you just get past. And so he, he, he has a lifelong battle, and it's, it's filled with ups and downs, as is common for those who sometimes struggle with addiction. In the 2000s, he receives three DUIs in six years. Instead of jail time, he actually spends six months in a residential alcohol treatment program. And like I said, no story of addiction is perfect. It's not always storybook. But he ended up serving as a huge inspiration for others who struggled with these with these issues and that struggled with the pressure of fame and things like that. He dedicated the rest of his life to being open about his struggles and and helping others get through them and there's something knowable about that i think i i I don't know what's like to to go through addiction but i I know dealing with mental health issues and things that i've gone through things where it's not even about hearing someone tell you what to do or how to fix it but someone else to be like i've been there i think is something that really is important and to have him speaking about his struggles and being so open about them alone is an inspiration and a piece of redemption for Blue. I, I really genuinely believe that. Now, he also, even beyond there, served as a big inspiration and mentor for a lot of major league pitchers throughout the years, including Mark Langston, Randy Johnson, and Dave Stewart. It hasn't always been easy or perfect for Vita Blue, but is one of the greatest African-American pitchers in the game's history and one of the most dominant pitchers of the 1970s, along with his story of redemption after his fall from grace. It's clear that Vita Blue's story, warts and all, is an essential one to telling the story of baseball. We're going to take our, our last break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Vita Blue's Hall of Fame candidacy and also do our thing and rank them on our list. Welcome back. So, the question on everyone's mind is I mean, is Vita Blue a Hall of Fame worthy candidate? Now, as my loyal listeners, can testify. I have a certain criteria I ask when I look at a player's hall worthiness. I am a, a large hall guy. Of course, first I look at the player's statistics and accomplishments. I look at their playoff performances. And then next I ask if they were amongst the best of their generation or decade or whatnot. Basically say, was blank the best blank of their generation? I talk about like when we're someone like Nolan Arenado. Was Nolan Arenado the best third baseman of their generation? The best defensive third baseman? the best power hitter third baseman that sort of thing and then finally i ask if there are any cultural aspects that lend extra weight or subtract weight from their argument because not always positive kenny rogers who had a viable career and through perfect games and things like that is further down the list and he probably would be most because he was a jerk and shoved reporters and was constantly in trouble so like it's not always positive positive. and then finally i ask if the player's story is essential to telling the story of baseball and while that is obviously subjective, it's my podcast. I get to be subjective. That's fine. Now, if most of those facts point towards the positive, then I think they're all fame-worthy player. Now, with Vita Blue, you can't necessarily argue straight statistics. We'll get there, but 45.1 war would be on the extreme low end for a Hall of Fame-worthy pitcher. It's not like he had a particularly short 
career either. Don't get me wrong. It's solid to well, uh, to well above average career-wise. He had a career average of 3.27 ERA through 3,343 innings with over 200 wins. Uh, I mean, that ain't nothing, right? In fact, it's a whole hell of a lot more than nothing. It's elite, in fact. It, I just I don't know if, if it's really hall-worthy on its own, but we'll revisit this in a second here. Oh, in fact, actually, no. Let's dive into the war argument here. 45.1 war, right? It feels low. But it actually, when you look at it, it's more than Hall of Fame uh, recent inductee Jack Morris, who had 43.1 war. And it's just .2 war behind Addy Josh, who obviously we've talked before about not punishing Josh, who was one of the most dominant pitchers of his time period for dying. <laughs> but but still, nonetheless, he's just .2 war behind him. Only .4 behind Herb Pennock. And 1.1 war behind Dizzy Dean, all of whom are in the Hall of Fame. Heck, even Sandy Koufax is just 3.8 war higher overall than Blue at 48.9. It's not... It's not... There isn't precedence for someone with Blue's war totals to make the Hall, for the record. Now, how about one of the best blank of his generation arguments, so to say, right? From 1970 to 1979, he was 38th among starters in ERA, 11th in innings pitched, 10th in wins, 9th in strikeouts, 11th in complete games, and 10th in war. It's certainly impressive and incredibly noteworthy, but I don't think it puts him amongst... I think it puts him amongst the best of his generation, but I don't think it's like the best of his generation. You do get to add in an MVP and a Cy Young Award in six All-Star games, which certainly bolsters the argument. But I think he's amongst the best of his generation, but not the best of his generation, or probably even in the top three or so of that generation. I don't necessarily lean in that direction as a positive, right? Now, when you look at it from a cultural standpoint, he certainly gets massive credit for being one of the best black pitchers of all time, including being a member of the Black Aces, as well as his status as a young phenom. Unfortunately, on the other side, he, he gets decent knocks to his cultural impact for his run-ins with the law and his issues with drug abuse. And I don't want to paint anyone who deals with drug abuse as a villain. That's not what I mean. But it, it does change how you view his career a little bit, right? Um, there's no villainy to it. This isn't uh, a book or a movie. But being arrested for cocaine and things, it's just, it's not, it is a knock on his legacy, right? Regardless of how we feel about this. I, I want to be clear, though, that I do factor that in. I'm not going to factor in that much. I'm not as harsh about his issues with drugs as some might be. For one, I think it's on a different moral ground than, say, if he did steroids or something like that. But, I mean, in fact, I probably limited his performance as opposed to enhanced it. And even more, and this is more important to me, is addiction's a disorder. And realizing the dangers of being famous so young and what they impose to him in terms of placing him almost in, in certain dangers at such a young age, seeing the dangers that was posed by by being so famous so young, seeing that and encountering it, Sadly, it comes with time and in retrospect, not in the moment. And so I don't hold it against them. I think we have to take that addiction in stride. And I don't want to ding him twice for it either, because obviously, if he hadn't probably struggled with drug use, he probably would have continued his peak for much, much longer, barring injury. And we would, you know, we wouldn't be having quite the same discussion about his Hall of Fame change. So he's already been punished for it. I'm not going to punish him for it twice. So definitely I'm going to give him a yes culturally. That's a positive. 
And then finally, is their story necessary for telling the story of baseball? Again, this is an easy yes, both from an inspirational and legendary perspective. Uh, again, he's a young phenom, overcame his addictions later in life. And also, for better or for worse, the unfortunately, what serves as a cautionary tale as well, which is important to the story of baseball, and is a, a major example of the effect cocaine had throughout baseball in the 1980s, which is a major problem in baseball in the 1980s. You can't tell the story of baseball in that time period without talking about cocaine and its proliferation of baseball. Is it important? It's not always a good story, or I guess it's a good story. Just say it's not always a, a, a fun story to tell. But it's important to the story of baseball, right? So, I mean, obviously, it's a huge yes. Now, with that all in mind, I think he's a borderline case in general. But if I think if the goal of the hall is to honor those who play a major part in telling the story of baseball, uh, I'm willing to give Blue the slight edge here. And so here I, I do say, yes, he is worthy of the hall of fame. So now with that answered, we're left with one final question. Where does Vita Blue rank on our all-time list of players to tell the story of baseball? First, as always, let's briefly review what the list looks like entering today. So first we have, uh, to give the roughly top 15 or so, we've got at number one, Sadaharu O. Number two, Satchel Page. Number three, Josh Gibson. Number four, Mickey Mantle. Number five, Greg Maddox. Number six, Mike Trout. Number seven, Ichiro. Number eight, George Brett. Number nine, Adrian Beltre. Number 10, Shohei Otani. Number 11, Clayton Kershaw. Number 12, Edgar Martinez. Number 13, Sandy Koufax. Number 14, Tony Gwen. Number 15, Hank Greenberg. Number 16, Nolan Arenado. Number 17, Joey Votto. Number 18, Scott Rowland. Number 19, Ron Santo. Number 20, Kenny Lofton. Number 25 is David Ortiz. Number 30 is Ryan Sandberg. Number 35 is Home Run Baker. Number 40 is Kenley Jansen. Number 45 is Evan Longoria. Number 50 is Moises Alou. Number 55 is Jason Veritek. Number 60 is Brad Radke. And number 65 is Herb Score. Number 66 is Mark Pryor. And finally, last on the list is number 67, James Paxton. Let's start just at the bottom and work our way up here. To start with Brad Radke at number 60. Both have the same amount of war overall, but blew through nearly 1,000 more innings and won about 60 more games, along with a Cy Young, no-hitter, and MVP, and a career ERA nearly a full point lower than Radke's 4.22 career mark. Radke also never had any point of dominance like Blues. He was more of a, a shining example of what consistency over an entire career can accomplish. So, Blue definitely somewhat obviously goes ahead of Radke at 60 at the very least. Now let's keep jumping up. Uh, the same exact criteria puts Blue ahead of Kenny Rogers at 58. What about Whitey Ford at 49? Now, Ford had just nine war more than Blue across a similar 17 seasons. Blue actually threw 200 more innings than Ford and about, had about 200 more strikeouts, uh, while Ford won just 27 more games than Blue while playing for the greatest baseball team of all time. Uh, now, Ford had a career 2.75 ERA compared to Blue's 3.27 ERA, but again, it's worth noting Ford did much of that pre-integration, which is worth considering. Most of their peripherals are almost identical in terms of strikeouts per nine, walks per nine, home runs per nine, and K per walk. Six World Series compared to three for Blue, and Ford won a Cy Young, but Blue has a Cy Young and an MVP. 
add in Blue's Legacy as a member of the Black Aces, and I think I'm going to bump Blue up here above Whitey Ford. So let's keep moving up the list. What about Jamie Moyer, number 42, and his spiritual predecessor, Jim Cat, at number 41? Now, Cat and Moyer both pitched over 20 seasons, but put up similar war numbers of Blue, so uh, clearly Blue did better on a year-to-year basis, if that makes sense. And Blue has both of them beat in terms of ERA, although according to ERA+, Plus, uh, which adjusts for the, the time period, they're practically the same ones that are adjusted for their era. Blue struck out hitters at a much higher rate as well, and while Cat did outpace Blue and wins by about 70 or so, the knock on Cat in this situation is he made just three All-Star games. He has no Cy Young, no MVP to his name. And it's questionable if Cat ever really had a stretch of dominance like Blue had early in his career. The same goes for Moyer, who went to just one All-Star game and never really had that stretch of dominance either. So again, I think Blue keeps moving up the list. Now we move on to Dizzy Dean at 41 and Corey Kluber at 39. And I have a feeling it's going to be right around here that we find a sweet spot for Blue. Kluber has two Cy Youngs to Blue's one, but Blue has an MVP as well, while Dean has just one MVP and no Cy Youngs. Dean pitched for just 12 seasons and falls about 50 wins short of Blue's total and has eh, nearly 1,000 fewer innings and 1,000 fewer strikeouts than Blue while having an ERA just 0.25 lower than Blue's 3.27 mark. There's an argument that Blue is worse in terms of war per season than Kluber and Dean, and there's probably an argument to that Kluber pretty easily had a peak on par with, if not better than Blue's best seasons. But I do think from a cultural standpoint, Blue goes ahead of Kluber, who has had, who obviously doesn't have any of the cultural stuff going for him, uh, and had his career fall off pretty drastically in the past few seasons as well. So I think I think Blue goes ahead of Kluber, especially considering the fact that Kluber is really falling apart in the last few seasons. But then we move to number 38, which is Roberto Alomar. I think this might be where we end up. It's hard to do pitchers to hitters in the comparison, obviously. But Alomar played 17 seasons, the same as Blue, while being one of, if not the best second baseman of his generation, and put up 22 more war in the same amount of seasons than Blue did. That's a lot. That's a lot of war. It's hard to, I mean, it's a lot of value is what I'll say. And while Alomar had a lot of poor behavior, I spit on an umpire at one point, um, which is not great. Obviously, I think that balances out a little bit with Blue's issues with drugs and the law. I'm going to let those be a wash. And while I would never diminish Blue's importance as a great black pitcher, I would never do that. I think it's incredibly important. I hope I've, I've emphasized that. I don't know if it's enough to bridge a 20-war gap. I'll think about that a little more. Maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll change that. But for right now, I think this is the spot. There's not a lot we can do to bridge that war gap here. So I think we'll slot Vita Blue in as the new number 39 on our list between Roberto Alomar and Corey Kluber. So that's our episode. It went a little long, but I felt this was a really important story and one I wanted to talk a lot more about because we don't know it as well. And so I wanted to make sure we really got all of that in there. Vita Blue is an incredibly important player, not just in the history of black players in baseball, but in telling the story of baseball overall. And and frankly, as a person, his road to redemption might have been just as important as anything he did on the diamond. And, and one of the major purposes of this podcast was to talk more about the undertold stories of baseball's great players. And I hope I've done Vita Blue justice today in doing so. Now, next week, I think we're going to take a look at a player 
who put up very similar career numbers to Blue and see how he measures up. This is Oral Hershiser. And while he wasn't a young phenom like Blue, he did put up one of the greatest records in baseball history. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. I'm fascinated to see where he measures up in the rankings. Until then, you can reach the podcast at Daniel J. Port. That's me on Twitter. Or the podcast is at LB Legacies on Twitter as well. Or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. Please, if you've got something to add to the to the discussion or debate a uh, player with me or anything like that, any corrections, anything I've missed, please let me know and uh, you can reach me there. Until then, and, and have a great rest of your Friday. Have a great rest of your weekend and I will see you next week. Thanks so much.